Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer Cahill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends, and thank you for being here for another episode of Regarding Consciousness. I am Jennifer K. Hill, the host of this show and CEO of OptiMatch, OM.app. And I am so grateful to have one of my favorite human beings on the show today, a friend, a scientist, a thought leader, Dr. Roland McCready from HeartMath. Roland has been part of HeartMath since its inception with Doc Childre in the early 1990s. He has been pioneering in heart-brain coherence and has been the director of research at HeartMath for many years and is now spearheading the Global Consciousness Project, which was handed over to him by Roger, who is another wonderful thought leader, and we'll be diving into that a little bit today. So if you've never heard about heart-brain coherence or wanted to learn more about consciousness and how it can actually be measured from a scientific standpoint, today's episode is for you. Roland, it's such a pleasure to have you here, my friend. Jennifer, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were getting coherent right before the show. Roland and I both are privileged to get to be part of something called the Global Coherence Pulse. And that's how we've gotten to know each other over the last few years. And we always drop into a state of coherence. We get into some heart-focused breathing. And we were both joking that before the show, we could have just spent the whole half hour just dropping into this beautiful state of coherence. Roland, I know some of our viewers and listeners might not be familiar with you and the breadth of your work and the amazing work you've been doing on science and the science of heart-brain coherence and consciousness. Maybe share with us a little bit about your history and how this became part of your life and your life's work. Oh my God, I'm not sure how far back to go on that. My original career, I guess you could say, was electrical engineering, communication engineer. I just worked for Motorola and always had a, from actually a very early age, wanted to know how things work. And in fact, my grandfather was a town mechanic, so I grew up in that world. But I would be asking questions of professors and things, learning what is a magnetic field, what is an electric field, and always would get, here's the formula that describes its behavior. What is it? Don't ask that. Go away. Literally, it was not quite that crass, but more or less, that was the energetics of it. So I'm going to make a long journey very short here. I stumbled upon a book in a bookstore, University of Nebraska at that time. And this has been got early 70s or mid 70s, somewhere in there. And it, it had some different perspectives on things. So I, long story short, I ended up moving to California to get a degree in consciousness studies they'll be a little bit deeper, deeper into that. And I won't go through the whole story, but so I learned all about meditation and this and that and all the different kind of things, but never quite fell completely into the new age kind of stuff because I was too grounded in real science, if you will. Ended up getting involved with introducing Spirulina to the world, the group that was doing that and stood up one of the companies and who did a national inquiry. I don't know if you know who that is, but it's one of the super nice, super, super supermarket magazines. I like to think of them. I was shocked at the power they had to drive people to do things. They did a, this was in the early eighties, a front page story on Spirulina. And in the next, the following two to three weeks, I sold about in, in the part of the business I was running a little under $20 million 
in sales. And anyway, we took the profits of that, went to the deserts of Southern California to build a spirulina farm to prove that you could feed the world's hungry populations. Okay. And actually pulled it off way ahead of our time, solar powered giant spray dryers and all this. Went nowhere because it was blocked really at a problem in consciousness. It wasn't the technology. We had the technology. It was there. It works. So that's in hindsight, Jennifer, I think, I look back on that and say, that's when my idealism bubble got popped because I had studies in consciousness and all this. It's all about consciousness. After that experience, it became visceral, a much deeper understanding that it really is a problem in consciousness. And so I'm not going through all the details of it, but basically I kind of, it, I think I was conscious of it at the time. I basically said, oh, the heck with this humanitarian stuff. I'm going to go make money. Because it's not, what's, why bother? Why put my life energy and life force into this? So I started an electric company in electrostatics, where my real background was, which became pretty successful. And a few years into that, don't get me wrong, I had a great time. It was a really fun ride. But there was something in my heart that was yearning for something deeper. Another sports car in a driveway wasn't going to quite do it. I wasn't super wealthy, but I could do whatever I want, whenever I wanted, and go wherever I wanted, that, that kind of thing. And then I met Doc Childry through, back actually through some connections from the Spirulina days and met him. Got to go spend an hour. I was back on the East Coast. He was on the East Coast at the time. I had some business back there and ended up spending three days. It's when I really learned about the heart and a much, the energetic heart. And that is really is the bridge to our larger self. And had a facilitated experience of that. That was way past what I would have imagined of enlightenment and got a direct contact with who. So I sold that company and along with a couple of handfuls of other people helped him found HeartMath. So what is HeartMath role? And obviously I'm a huge fan of it. I'm sure I've mentioned it on many of these other episodes in the past, but if people aren't aware, what is HeartMath? That's always a challenging question to answer as well, because it's so broad in, in many ways, but at the simplest way I can say it, Jennifer, it's a system of tools and techniques that people can use that we make very simple. A lot of care goes into simplifying this that allow people to shift into what we call a state of heart coherence physiologically, and that's measurable and can be fed back and facilitated. That gets our heart and brain in sync, physiologically speaking, which connects us more with our, the heart's intuitive guidance. That's a whole other story. Right in the moment. So we focus a lot on day-to-day. -day. How do we flow through non-flowing situations? Right. With more ease, more, com more compassion, being, really being able to be heart-centered throughout the day. But then our research spans, we spent 20 years really researching how the heart and brain communicate and the physiology of that and how to develop tools and techniques that anyone can use from kindergarten to literally generals and corporate executives to really shift into that optimal state of coherence. And in more recent years, we've been more focused on global interconnectivity, social coherence. How do we help groups of people get along better, make better decisions, whether that's an athletic team or a leadership team, or just working together in teams within whatever the context might be, a business, a hospital. I remember that was one of my favorite things that I learned when I was in the training for the Heart of Teams, I believe it was, that I did with HeartMath a few years ago. And one of my favorite studies is, well, and I've mentioned this a few times, was the study where you have four people in a room and one person is incoherent. So we often think of incoherent, right? As somebody who's drunk or babbling or not making any sense. 
though there's actually a physiological response that is incoherent, which is more of a reactive state, let's say. And then you have three people who have utilized heart math techniques. A very easy one you could find anywhere on the internet is heart-focused breathing probably would be a good go-to. And that three people who were incoherent, who were incoherent, and a fourth person who was incoherent became coherent just by being around three coherent people. Is that right, Roland, if I'm remembering that study? Well, more or less. That was actually a really well-done study. I um, loved it. It was one of my favorite things I learned. It was actually for a PhD dissertation of a, a rather seasoned person that got his degree later in life. Pretty advanced mathematics and stuff. But basically, it was you're exactly right. Four people around a table through a, about a nine-phase protocol. That's a, the naive person who didn't know what the real purpose of the study was. They weren't necessarily incoherent. They were just kind of there, not really knowing what the real purpose was. And at v various times through that protocol, the other three people shifted into a heart coherent state in a way that the other person didn't know what was going on. And what it did show was that overall, there was about 40 people involved in that study. The naive person was lifted measurably into a more coherent physiological state. And it, that was also the first study that showed heart-to-heart -heart synchronization amongst the group members and those groups of four people, which led to a whole lot of other work coming out of that because of those observations as well. Because it shows what our state has measurable effects on others. That is the most powerful thing. I remember years ago, forgive me, those of you listening and rolling, this goes for you too. I was, many of you know, I've shared that I'm a recovering jerk. I had my moments when I was younger. And I was in a class with a thought leader, and her name is Allison Armstrong. So I'm in this class with her, and I remember getting peeved rolling. So it was back when smartphones had first come out. And if you've ever seen my handwriting, it is illegible even to me. So smartphones were a godsend for me because I could take all my notes on my smartphone. So the first class I do with Allison, I'm in love with it. It's brilliant, transformative. And I take all my notes on the phone. Second class, they tell you a little bit about how is it going to go? One thing you need to know about this class is you can't take notes on your phone. Now talk about one person being incoherent in a room of 200 people being coherent, but the one incoherent person disrupting the other 200. I didn't even think I could have that bad of an impact, but I was glaring daggers selfishly. I was so upset when they said, you can't use your phone. I was like, yes, I can. So first I try using it. And then people are like, ma'am, we already told you can't use your phone in this class. And so then I just sat there rolling in the middle of the room, glaring at this poor woman and her co-facilitator. So I don't think anybody can feel it. It's a room of two to 300 people taking this class. And I get a note after lunch and said, I stick a little note in your name tag. And so I see the note it says, see Allison at the end of the lunch break. And I go and I'm like, hi, Allison, how can I help you? And she said, if you don't stop sending negative energy and evil eye to myself and my co-facilitator, you will be thrust out of this class. But I had no idea. It's just like one incoherent person can impact an entire organization, an entire class, a family. What are your thoughts on that, Roland? You already said it. It's not, we all know this. We have words in our language. The tension was so thick in that room, you could have cut it with a knife. These are common sayings because we intuitively, we know this. All we've done is add science to it. I hear from so many people, Jennifer, that more, more the lay public who reads an article or learns about some real work, thank you for confirming scientifically what I already knew or believed to be true. It gives me more confidence to really be myself and what I know. 
the quick science of that is when we put electrodes on the body, like to measure the electrocardiogram, heartbeat, it's called the electrocardiogram for a reason, right? We're measuring electricity. Literally, you're measuring current flow when you put electrodes on, whether it's the head, the, across the chest, of course, much bigger signal on the, the heart and the brain. But whenever you have a flow of electrical current, you create a magnetic field. Electrodes don't see that. They, they measure current flow. To measure that field, you use a device called a magnetometer, which I know you know this. And the reason that I can say with great confidence that we have a magnetic field that radiates many feet around us, I can put a probe out here, a magnetometer, and measure it. And we were able to, this is going back to the 90s, yeah, in our work, we're able to then show, this is where my background of being a communications engineer, I think, came in really handy. Because it was really easy. Okay, we got the signal out here, and there's very standard methods to decode the information being carried by that field. Same thing I used at Motorola to look at the information being carried by a radio signal. Our, our, we're doing the same thing. So our, what we're feeling in that case, your anger is not like you were kind of seething there. Oh, God. We're broadcasting that into the field. And we now many studies later, we know that has measurable effects on other people. Physiologically, you can see that. One of my favorite things, Roland, that I learned in heart math, one of many favorite things, is the idea that our heart has its own brain. And I would love for you to share a little bit about the heart and its neurons. We'll start with that. And then I have another follow-up question. I'm certainly not going to take credit for that. The, technically, it's called the intrinsic cardiac nervous system, and which was nicknamed the heart brain by the, the, one of the pioneers or leaders, if you will, of the, a, a whole field called neurocardiology. Now, this is the study of the anatomy and the function of the intrinsic cardiac nervous system or the brain and the heart. So uh, the heart really does have its own intrinsic brain. And these neurons, and we'll call it the heart brain, are basically named a lot of them after neurons found up here in our cranial brain, our head brain. The, they're formed in ganglia that are distributed around the heart, which are all interconnected. They've been now proven to have long-term memory, short-term memory, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, all the things to, to say it's a functional brain. And that little brain in the heart sends far more information to the brain in our head than the other way around. And we could spend a whole hour on that topic. So, I'm gonna so I want to tie this in. So this is my follow-up question. The way my brain is going on this, both my heart and my brain are both asking the same question. So our hearts have their own brains. And how does that tie into consciousness? Does our heart have its own consciousness? Or where does consciousness come from? You're heading the Global Coherence Project that you're involved in. Sure. Of course, that's a question that has been debated and is still being debated to this day. So I'm not going to sit here and attempt to give a, an answer to that. One of my mentors, I've, had, I've been fortunate to have a lot of awesome mentors in my life kind of people you want to plug cables under their head and download. And one of those was Carl Prebrum. You probably know who Carl was, but he's now transitioned. But he's probably not the first to look at it this way, but probably in the very early 90s, and he got attracted to our work. He said, well, the topic of consciousness would come up. And this is one of the preeminent neurosurgeons in the world, neuroscientists in the world. In fact, he was one of the first neurosurgeons that ever existed. I don't know if you knew that about Carl. But no, I didn't. But he came up, there were maybe two or three small handful of neurosurgeons that were actually doing brain surgery on people. So he put the whole span of, from knowing nothing about the brain to being probably the world's expert on it. Anyway, so we had a lot of discussions about consciousness, the nature of consciousness. 
And of course, from the neuroscience perspective, most would argue that consciousness is a product of our neurons in our brain, and we're conscious when we're awake and we're unconscious when we're asleep and so on. That's what he would call little C consciousness. That's why I use that term from, I got from him. And in big C consciousness is the other type of consciousness that the debate's still raging about is consciousness, the information, for example, that created the universe, that informed all that is in a certain way in the universe. And that tends to be my view. And there's so many levels and layers of consciousness from that perspective. And uh, I remember you introduced me to Roger Nelson, the head of the Global Consciousness Project, who did that for many decades. And you, now you've since created a GCP2, I believe is what you were telling me it's called before this. Tell us a little bit about the Global Consciousness Project and how it's actually scientifically measuring consciousness around the world. Okay, so GCP-1, as we now lovingly call it, that was created by Roger when he was at Princeton University, about probably getting close to 25 years ago. And we'll go into all the history here of how this came to be, but it basically, I think of it, Jennifer, as a globally distributed scientific instrument. Mm -hmm. And it's what it is. And so GCP-1 has a long history now. So it's just, at that time, they had about 70 of the devices, physical devices, that are called random number generators. Now that can sound all mysterious and stuff, but basically the way to think of a random, or an RNG, random number generator, which are actually very hard to make, by the way, you get truly random sequences, which basically means that the past behavior, there's no way that you can predict the future behavior. Based hmm. on the, it's a simple way of thinking of it. Think of them as electronic coin flippers. Ah, yes. So if we get out an actual physical coin and flip it, heads or tails, a hundred times or a thousand times, you do that. On average, you're going to get 50 heads, 50 tails, right? It might be 51, 49, one time, but on average, it's going to, if you do it enough times, be 50, 50. So that's basically what random number generators are doing. I mean, instead of heads or tails, it's ones or zeros, but same concept. It just does it really fast. Okay. So you've got these devices around the world flipping coins right? And then our time synchronized, sending their data all back to one computer and one server, right? That's then looking at the behavior of this global network. Now, what GCP-1 convincingly showed is that when something happens that evokes a lot of people to pay attention and feel something, mm. and emotionality is critical in this, and this could be a terrorist attack like 9-11 or the death of Princess Diana was one of a big event, or it can be global prayer days or Earth Day, like Earth Day and these types of things, Global Peace Day, or large organized meditation events, these types of things that happen. The behavior of this network to change. It took me a while to really, Jack, when we took it over, really dug in to really understand what was happening in this network. So I used to think and talk about, well, they're not being as random. The devices were all kind of being more random or less random or whatever than they should be, it's actually not correct for the most part. What is actually happening, and this is why you have to have a network to see this, is that globally, now this is what's crazy about this to me, is that more, way more devices than should be start flipping ones at the same time. So it's a correlated, so it's a, something is interacting with the devices in a way that creates a, a coherence, a correlation in their activity. Wow. And so Roger was able to show the statistics on GCP-1, I think are four, it's 
people, I won't talk about p-values, but it's basically four trillion to one odds against chance that this is a real effect, right? So somehow something about our emotions, I'll say consciousness or the quality, the content of our consciousness is somehow radiating out. And when there's enough people feeling something at the same time, it is interacting at global scale to change, to interact with and change the behavior of these devices. And I mentioned it's hard to make random numbers, right? The way that it's done in these devices is a process called quantum tunneling. And what that means, this is a very well-known phenomenon, but basically you try and force an electron through a barrier it doesn't want to go through. So you put enough energy behind it and some a small percentage of those electrons tunnel through the thing they shouldn't be going through somehow. And then you measure that on the output. And that's a completely random non-predictable process. And that's what we use as the basis to then make random, get these really random number generators. So it's a truly quantum process in this case. I don't use quantum a lot in my language, but in this case, it's a true quantum process. And so that's your equivalent of the coin flipping is that quantum tunneling? That's the source of it. Yeah. It's basically come out as a, it's not that simple, but you take those electrons that come out and it goes through a process to turn it into ones or zeros. Okay, so interesting. So I know, Roger, you introduced me graciously to Roger a few years ago, and you and I have talked about this since. So what does that mean for us as human beings, Roland, when we get into the idea of consciousness, that if enough people, if you have this collective consciousness, either for the positive, global meditations, I remember Roger graciously looked up using his random number generators around the world, when we did the big global meditation, I think it was March 9th of 2020, right before COVID happened, we got hundreds of thousands of people meditating. He said, yes, you could actually see much to your point of shift or on the flip side, when detrimental, awful things happen in the world. So what does that tell you as a scientist, Roland, about consciousness and about how it impacts us? I think the most simple way to say it, Jennifer, is the quality of our consciousness. In other words, the vibrate, I'm going to use the word vibrations that we're emanating into the field matter in a way that we can now prove, I would say, it's a pretty strong word in science, but that our consciousness is interacting with and that changing or affecting the physical world. What does that say for us as human beings right now, given the state of the world? Before we go there, let me, my favorite study that Roger did, you know, where he looked across hundreds of events that were studied over the 25 years, in a, so there are 500, what he, what Roger calls formal events. Now to be a formal event means that it was predicted ahead of time, mm. right? And registered in a public site that says, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to analyze it. Right. So you can't cherry pick in a certain way. Right. So it might be global peace day, right? Say, so, oh, upcoming global peace day, we're going to analyze this at this time in this way and so on. So 500 of those events. We're in, in, in Roger's formal analysis to, for those statistics I was talking about. Now, my, back to what my favorite study he did was looking at those events. He rated them for their level of love and compassion. Obviously, globally focused meditation events, global peace days, things like this, high love and compassion being fed into the field. I'll call it the consciousness field of the earth. Uh, then he had medium. So these are events that evoke a lot of emotion because we know that's a critical factor. Trying to mentally do it doesn't work, right? You know, it's emotion, very clear. So this would be things like Super Bowls or World Cups. A lot of emotion, right? But not necessarily a lot of love and compassion 
And then in the low category was things like the after effect of people's terrorist attacks and so on, big earthquakes and so on. 9-11 be in that category, of course, which was the biggest single effect ever shown on the network. And then analysis. Those events that evoke love and compassion have a significantly greater impact on moving the needle, if you will, on this globe, in affecting the global consciousness field. That's amazing, Roland. So what we're saying is if we could all just show each other a little bit more love and compassion, particularly all at the same time, which is exactly what you're doing with the Global Consciousness Project, with the Global Coherence app that you have and the Global Coherence Pulse that we collaborate on. That's really what we're doing every time we do one of these events or your full moon events or the different things that you're doing with HeartMath. Halting the field with love and compassion. And it is so true. It's as somebody who was a recovering jerk. <laughs> and people may not believe it nowadays, but I do still have to go back and say, go ask anybody who knew me during that period. Because I, I was talking to a girlfriend about this over lunch today, she said she was struggling with a guy she was dating. And I said, I used to be that person. I apologize on behalf of him. He didn't know what he didn't know. And people often ask me, Roland, why do you spend two to three hours a day in prayer and meditation? And it's because as much as I know I have the capacity to take down a room with an evil stare, I also know I have the capacity, and this is not just me, Jennifer, it's I, you, Roland, you, whoever is listening, any one of us has the compassion to build or destroy entire cities with who we're being in our level of consciousness and coherence. That might be a little too strong for your work. Might be a little bit too strong for me, but I can say with confidence that, you know, if so we're, we have the Global Conscious 2.0 project, which is a completely re-envisioned version, asking new questions that will be able to go much deeper. We also have the Global Coherence Initiative, which we're measuring the magnetic field environment of the Earth, is magnetometers around the Earth in a tree project, our global tree project, measuring the electroactivity of trees. So we're able to study how we're interconnected with the energetic fields of the earth and each other in, a, I think, a new way. This is really setting the ground for a new, completely new set of tools to ask the question of how we're interconnected. I wanted to give that preface by, so I mean, I often say becoming more, our goal is to help people become more responsible for what we're feeding the field. Because what we're in both the field we can measure, and I can prove, put a probe out here and measure it, that matters, but it also matters globally. So the point is we're always feeding the field. It's not just when we come together to do, a, say, a full moon care-focused med, care meditation or a global coherence pulse or join in many other events or go to church and pray on Sundays or whatever that might be. We're connected to the field 24-7. So it's really, you've really said it well. It's my encouragement would be pause throughout the day as often as you can remember to and just simply ask yourself, what am I feeding the field? Am I feeding it frequencies of frustration and anxiety and overwhelm and or whatever? Or am I feeding the field kindness and compassion and appreciation? Because it does matter. Yeah, so smart. Each one of us, we could put a little meme on our phone, a little note on our computer. What are we feeding the field? And this moment as you're listening, watching us, what are we feeding the field? Roland, I know you're doing amazing work around the world, not only with HeartMath, but with the Global Coherence Project. I know we were talking offline about how one of the ways that people can help support what you're doing on the Global Consciousness Project, I believe it's GCP2. So G is in Gary, C is in Cat, P is in Paul, the number two.net. Is that the right website for people to go to if they want more? Exactly the website. And as of today, the website is, it's a, 
MVP website. It's one just to get it up and running and just all the functionality. It's not horrible, but we're designing a much better website to really communicate the next generation feel of what this is really all about. This truly is a next gen project. That's why we call it GCP2. It's been completely redesigned from the ground up, including the devices that were designed by some of the world experts and making random number generators specifically for the this network. And it's a citizen scientist space project. In fact, I invited you earlier. We need a dot on the global map in there in Lisbon. Hopefully one will show up shortly. But some of our citizen scientists get involved, host a device. That's one way you can be involved as a citizen scientist. But there, once we get the network built out more, we'll be inviting the citizen scientists to participate in new kinds of experiments. Yeah, I took some notes here. I just want to highlight this. If you're in any of these cities, definitely explore. There are many other opportunities as well. I believe it was Madrid, London, Rome, Stockholm, Tel Aviv. The goal is if you want to help us understand how can we elevate our own consciousness and better measure what we're pulsing the field around the world, get involved. I was totally geeking out with Roland before we came on today to talk about this. So I love it, Roland. And any other invitations you'd love to invite people to participate in out of, you know, in, if somebody's feeling inspired out of what you've shared today, is there yeah, any? So, uh, first, I'm going to add two cities to your list, Okay, uh, which is New York and LA. Yes. So we are managing where these, where our goal is to get a thousand of these new next generation RNGs distributed pretty much, I won't say evenly because you got oceans, but as much as we can around the planet. And so we're doing half of the network in what we're calling cluster areas, which are the cities and areas you mentioned. The U.S. is pretty much full. So if you, except for LA and New York, but the Europe, Africa, Australia, the rest of the world is pretty wide open. So half will be in those cluster cities that, or areas that you mentioned, and the other half just distributed around the world, anywhere. So you don't have to be in one of those cities that we just mentioned to, to participate. What, would, what did you just ask me? Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, if there's any other way that if people want to learn more about heart math, about heart-focused breathing, of course, we do the Global Coherence Pulse, which is an effort to pulse the planet with this love and compassion the third Saturday of every month at noon. But aside from the Global Coherence Pulse, where else would you like people to go to learn more about what you're doing? Our website's a great place, heartmath.org. Okay. Uh, and if you're interested in the Global Consciousness Project 2.0, being involved, it's, uh, you already said it, it's gcp2.net, where you can go and learn more about it, apply to be a host of one of the devices. Thank you, Roland. As always, it is such a pleasure and an honor. You and I, as we said earlier, we can talk for hours about science, the heart, consciousness. So. We just barely scratched the surface of the iceberg of consciousness today with Dr. Roland McCready from HeartMath and the Global Consciousness Project, the Global Coherence Pulse, and many other incredible endeavors. Thank you, my friend, for all of your consciousness, all of your heart, and the great good that you are doing in the world to help us all become more resilient, more whole, more conscious human beings. It is a pleasure to know you. Thank you. Likewise, Jerry. Much love, my friend. And thank you to each of you for listening. May each one of us go out into this day this week, this month, and this year with a bit more heart, a bit more consciousness, and a bit more compassion. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Regarding Consciousness with Jennifer K. Hill. 
We would love it if you would take a moment and write a review for us or rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And if you'd like to stay in touch and find out about upcoming events with some of the amazing guests we've had on the show, like Deepak Chopra and other world thought leaders, feel free to join my email list at metabizics, M-E-T-A-B-I-Z-I-C-S dot com. Again, that's metabizics.com. And you can go ahead and join our email list there. Thanks so much. And we look forward to having you join us next week.